fanatics. Welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, your podcast host, and I am also someone who recently got in trouble for bringing up Jeffrey Dahmer not once, but three times in conversation with a stranger. I thought my anecdotes are relevant, um, but the stranger thought that I was horrifying. Anyway, today I have a very special guest for you. Um, We are going to hear from an extraordinarily talented lady who was recommended to me by a lovely listener named Yesenia, who emailed me months ago suggesting I get in touch with this author. So, Yesenia, thank you. I hope you enjoy this. Laura Elizabeth Woollett is an Australian writer who writes a lot about the real women of history who have, for better or for much, much worse, fallen in love with extraordinarily bad men. Her short story collection, The Love of a Bad Man, dives into the girlfriends, the wives, the mistresses of men like Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, Paul Bernardo, and Charles Starkweather, who we actually talked about in episode 8. Her latest novel, which came out in July, is called Beautiful Revolutionary, and though the book is fiction, she did so much intense research for it that I thought it would be fun to have her on the podcast so she could tell us a little bit about what she uncovered. Because this is a story that we're all probably pretty familiar with, but we're only familiar with half of it. We're familiar with the man in the story. We're very familiar with the man in the story. But Beautiful Revolutionary is the tale of the woman in the story, a woman named Carolyn Layton. Carolyn Layton. Did you know that name? I didn't. But I knew the name of her lover, and I bet you will too. His name was Jim Jones. I realized that I was always bored by men until I met Jim. Whatever interest I'd had in all men before him faded and boredom ensued within a few days, and sex was never fulfilling. I can't express how completely every need for companionship is, and romance is fulfilled by him. He gives me so much time and he sleeps only a few hours a night. This way he can give his children the time they need to do the things they want, and he also gives Marcy the time her psyche needs. He is always there when I need him. That's Laura reading a letter from Carolyn, who was writing to her younger sister Becky in 1970. Carolyn had been having an affair with Jones for about two years by then, and as you can see from her letter, she was all in. Eight years later, she'd be demonstrating just how all in she was when she helped Jones preside over one of the worst tragedies in American history, the deaths at Jonestown, also known as the People's Temple Agricultural Project. Over 900 people died there on a single day, mostly by cyanide poisoning, in an act Jones called revolutionary suicide, but most of us call a massacre. Though Jones was very much the sun-glassed face and the paranoid voice behind Jonestown, Carolyn was at his side for 10 years, silently bolstering his power and gaining more and more power for herself. 
From the very beginning of their affair, Carolyn's family very much disliked the infamously charismatic Jim Jones. But at first, it wasn't all that strange that Carolyn would become enamored with someone who was highly political and driven to create real change in the world, like him, because she was like that, too. After all, that's how she was raised. She was born in uh, 1945 in Sacramento. Um, she was the eldest daughter of a Methodist minister. And um, her family were pacifists, and they were the kind of Christians who believed that Christianity meant a lot more than just scripture and church going. It meant actually being active and helping people. Shortly after her birth, actually, her father took a job at an all-black church in um, Youngstown, Ohio, and Carolyn was the only white child in her group, and her par- parents were quite cr- proud of the fact that she even had a black Santa Claus. Um, so, you know, they, this was in the 1940s, and they, they were really, the family were all about integration and, you know, values which were a bit alternative to mainstream America at that time. When Carolyn was two, her mum kind of fell ill from the complications of the miscarriage and Carolyn was sent to live with her grandparents for a few months. And um, the separation was said to lead to some quite severe attachment issues. And um, Carolyn, once she was returned to her parents, was quite an anxious kid and would cry if left alone and would only fall asleep if her father kind of held her or rocked her to sleep. And later he would wonder about this and like the damage that had been caused by that separation and whether it had actually uh, sparked like an Oedipal conflict, um, which was responsible for her eventual relationship with Jim Jones. But they moved back to California. Um, the family had two more daughters, Becky and Annie, who were um, quite a bit younger than Carolyn, six years and nine years young- younger than her. Um, so she was really, you know, ended up being quite uh, independent, high-achieving, and quite popular in school. And she always, you know, had a strong social conscience. And from about the age of 15, actually, she considered herself a communist. And in high school, she told her dad that she didn't ever expect to marry. She would rather be a bachelor girl. Carolyn did, however, end up married as an adult. And the man she chose surprised her friends and family. His name was Larry Layton, and he was a pacifist and a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. Surely this would have appealed to Carolyn, but aside from his appropriately hippie politics, her friends thought he was just too passive for her, not a good match for her strong-willed nature. Still, they got married in 1967 and quickly moved to a place where they could live out their hippie dreams. They couldn't have possibly known who they would find there. They moved into this quite rural area of Northern California and um, took advantage of that by planting some marijuana in their backyard, as you do. They, you know, started shopping around for a church because even though Carolyn by this point actually did consider herself an atheist, she still liked having the structure and you know social side of the church that that brings. But they couldn't really find a, ta- a place that kind of um, matched their values and their youth until one day they were just out for a stroll and um, a guy pulls over and offers them a ride. And um, he starts talking about his church and he's very friendly and very charming and his name is Jim Jones. Jim Jones. 
By the time that Carolyn and Jim Jones first locked eyes, Jones had already proven himself to be a very complicated leader. He'd done incredible work for social justice and racial equality in his home state of Indiana, and he was proud of his large family of adopted children from different backgrounds, calling them his rainbow family. He was bubbling over with the traits that would make him one of the most effective cult leaders in history. Charisma, passion, seemingly endless energy, thanks to pharmaceutical drug abuse, and an almost palpable power. Some followers met him and instantly assumed he could work magic. But he was also starting to show signs of the weirdness and paranoia that would eventually lead to disaster. He'd moved his church from Indiana to Northern California because he foretold a nuclear apocalypse on July 15, 1967, that didn't happen, and he could be sadistic and manipulative, prone to power trips and willing to humiliate those who disagreed with him or rejected him sexually. He was also married, and had been for about 20 years. His wife was Marceline Jones, beloved by his church. They called her Mother. When Carolyn and Larry arrived at Jones' church, which was strikingly diverse, Jones gained their trust and admiration right away by telling them that they should get rid of the marijuana plants in their backyard or else there'd be trouble with the law. All this despite the fact that they'd never told anyone about the marijuana plants. This statement clearly proved powerful and convincing, and so they did what he said. Soon enough, Carolyn was writing home to her parents, raving about her new church and how great its minister was. Even though Jones was 38 to Carolyn's 23, and even though both were married, they soon began an affair. As her parents would find when they visited her a few months later, this affair made Carolyn seem different. The Moore family hadn't seen their daughter in a few months and they came to visit her in uh, the February of 1969. When Carolyn answered the door, she um, had a black eye, which she, she said was um, the result of an accident while she was teaching her PE class at the local high school. Uh, but another shock they had was that um, Carolyn also had a gun at the house, which uh, she said was for self-defense since they were living in a rural area um but she had been raised a pacifist and had always been against guns so this was um a disturbing thing for them they asked about where their son-in-law larry was and carolyn um kind of made excuses and said that she would be calling her minister when jim jones arrived uh together carolyn and jim informed her parents that they were in love and um, that Carolyn was in the process of getting a divorce from her husband, Larry, who was in Reno, Nevada at that time. When Carolyn's mother asked, are you going to get, you know, are, are you two going to get married? He said, no. You know, his wife was a sick woman and, um, you know, he was afraid of what the uh, separation would do to her. So... Him and Carolyn were just going to continue in this extramarital relationship.
So Carolyn's in- intimate relationship with Jim Jones was not known to the majority of people within the church, you know, and for a lot of people that actually took about 20 years after Jonestown to find out about it, um, they were just completely unaware. But Carolyn was well known to be an authority figure and more generally just an important person and a person to go to um, for business and a person that if she, she told you to do something, um, you were supposed to do it because it was coming directly from Jim Jones, it was assumed. And yeah, uh, people who knew Carolyn earlier, um, you know, her family and her college friends, remember her as this outgoing, vivacious, independent sort of young woman. But within People's Temple, um, people had a very different perspective of her and um, some would say that she underwent a personality change. I'm not sure if it was a change as um, you know elements of her character which were already there kind of being enhanced and others just you know being cast off. One survivor described her as um, Jonestown's American Gothic because she um, always had her hair back in a bun um, and she always had this kind of impassive, unsmiling sort of demeanour like like the woman in the American Gothic painting. And another actually uh, saw her as, um, he described her as a great eminence within the kingdom of Jim Jones, a person who possessed the power behind the throne but whose official position was actually quite undefined. Um, You know, she was generally seen as a secretary, but she was a lot more than that at the same time. Carolyn and Jones had been lovers for almost 10 years and even had a two-year-old child together named Jim John and nicknamed Chemo. When, very abruptly, Jones Church pulled up its California roots and moved to a compound in the country of Guyana. Jones had been planning this move for a while, but he was also fleeing allegations of emotional and sexual abuse that were about to be published in the press. He humbly called the compound Jonestown, and their lives in the jungle were supposed to be paradise, lived far away from the corrupting reach of what Jones saw as the fascist United States of America. And in some ways, it was paradise. Here's Laura reading a letter that Carolyn sent to her sister about how life was for her little boy, Chemo, in the jungle. Chemo does well in the preschool program. He is enjoying fully the outdoors, the sunshine and hiking around on his own some too. He talks about eating his cassava, greens, his plantains, the unique jungle vocabulary. He continually discusses heavy equipment such as as the tractor, backhoe, dump truck, the cranes, the radio. He can say our call letters. And he seems fascinated with how this sort of equipment works. It is not many two-year-olds who have lived in the asphalt jungle and then have flown halfway across the world, taken the jungle boat ride, and finally ended up living on a tropical farm. I must say his life experiences have been rich and varied. His worldview must be quite unusual for his age. But all was not well in the world of Jonestown. Jim Jones himself was, by this point, heavily abusing drugs, paranoid, and prone to rambling into a microphone, which blasted his voice all over the compound, for hours. 
As he went on and on about how Jonestown was the most beautiful socialist community in the world, any idealism was belied by flaw after flaw in this little community he'd created, like the fact that he wouldn't allow anyone to leave, or the fact that he cut off his followers' ties to the outside world in a classic cult leader maneuver, or his insistence that he could sleep with whoever he wanted, something that Carolyn seemingly would not let herself get upset about. Even his talk of equality was contradicted by the telling racial breakdown of his inner circle. The inner circle were a lot more detached from the community than people who were actually living in Jonestown and working the land and having this completely different experience. It was between 70 and 80% of the people in Jonestown were African American, and yet um, Jones's inner circle was almost exclusively white, and people who came the temple in the later years noted that and even um carolyn's sister becky came to visit once and she was just like yeah i'm not buying this because you know what is the power structure and she found it pretty messed up it, you wonder how they justified it i mean i think there was that combination of um you know wanting to devote themselves and show how devoted they were and prove it but also enjoying the power i think and um craving that and you know, wanting to advance and to be top of the line. They were, um, you know, for the most part, ambitious young women. And I think they let that part of themselves, um, you know, accept it and found justifications. Tensions in Jonestown rose, and Jones became increasingly paranoid about his followers leaving. Carolyn wrote up a very practical document, mere weeks before everything came to a head. She titled it, An Analysis of Future Prospects. What I am trying to say is if we make a stand or decide to die, how are we going to do it? How are you going to convince Stephen, or would you? And Stephen is Jones's adult son uh, by Marceline. How will we have the knowledge to know now is the time to go ahead and do it? Do we give everyone pills? It would, I presume, have to be a kind of last minute thing. Perhaps planning is the answer to all this. Maybe there is a practical way all this can be arranged. I wish I knew because there are things I would and should burn, and things which should be kept if we do choose death. I guess I am so anal that I would like to have everything all organised before I die, including what I would like people to come along and find out about you and the organisation after we are gone. I wish the book were done too. I wish documents could be organised that need to be kept. I guess this is all stupid and unrealistic, but those are some of my feelings about death. Now, it's easy to think of the Jonestown tragedy as something that was caused by the delusion and narcissism of one man, of one cult leader, hopped up on amphetamines and hiding his flaws behind dark sunglasses. But to think that is to underestimate the women of Jones' inner circle, especially Carolyn. As you can see from her analysis of future prospects, death was very much on Carolyn's mind, and she was approaching it with the icy practicality that had become her signature. Why death, though? Why not just let people go? On a very abstract, idealistic level, the inner circle saw mass suicide as a way to make a political point, as a way to say, we are socialists, and you, the world, are not allowing us to live the way we want to, so we are going to die. 
But the idea of mass suicide was also fueled by Joan's paranoia and need. He wanted everyone to be absolutely loyal to him, following him, even unto death. In fact, he had already been forcing his followers to rehearse mass suicide by that point, and he called these traumatizing run-throughs his white nights. But the real thing was very much on Joan's mind. And everything quickly unraveled by November 17, 1978, when a congressman named Leo Ryan arrived to inspect the Jonestown compound with a number of journalists. Jones had told everyone to act happy and like everything was perfect, but things began spiraling out of control when some of his supposedly loyal followers asked the congressman's group to help them get out of Guyana. The next day, when Congressman Ryan tried to leave by plane, Jones sent men after him with orders to murder him. Ryan and four others were shot dead and left on the airstrip. Jones then told everyone in the compound to gather in the main pavilion, where loyal members were already waiting with a big vat that they wanted everyone to drink from, including the babies. The vat was full of a strange liquid, a lethal concoction of flavor aid, sedatives, and cyanide. In footage taken earlier that day, Carolyn seems relaxed. Even though her sister commented on the fact that she is quite absent from photographs and film footage, I did find um, probably about 10 seconds of footage of her on the final day in Jonestown. And um, it, it was taken in the pavilion um, on the morning of Leo Ryan's visit, the congressman. And by that point, a few people had kind of voiced the fact that they wanted to leave and um Leo Ryan was there and Jim Jones was there and the people who wanted to leave were there and were talking with him and um he was trying to convince them to stay and just talking about how much he loved them and so forth and um you see a lot of people milling around and uh a lot of men in particular just standing around with crossed arms and looking um a bit threatening and you know ready ready to jump basically um but in the background I I saw Carolyn and she's talking to Charles Gary who was the temple's lawyer and um another woman called Patty Cartmel and the lawyer looks a bit anxious um Patty looks stressed and angry but Carolyn is just kind of sitting back and she has her legs crossed and she's talking and um she seems like the calmest person on the scene almost like you you can see um you know even compared with Jim Jones she she seems a lot less agitated and she really seems to accept whatever's going down um and having spoken to people I I heard from one man that he thinks the decision was probably made the night before um just the fact that they let Leo Ryan in they were very um very against that and I think they made the decision the night before um and she had come to peace with that somehow and uh yeah was knew what was going ahead at least that was the impression I got but you know it's hard to say just from a few seconds of footage but it, it definitely struck me um her body language and her calmness Thank you.
um, man I spoke to also, um, he escaped because he was um, quite high up as well and he was given the task of transporting a suitcase full of money out of Jonestown and it was supposed to go to the Soviet embassy and, you know, continue communism without them, basically. Um, But this man had just come from the pavilion where people were dying and um, his wife and child had died and he, he saw that and was understandably very upset. But he had been given a message to come to Jim Jones's cabin. He lived in, by that point, with Carolyn. They were living together. Um, but also their son lived there, the son by the woman um, who was said to have another son by Jim Jones. And, um, and also Carolyn's sister, Annie, who had joined the church at an earlier stage. Um, that was her youngest sister. And um, another young woman called Maria Katsaris. They all lived together. Yeah, but this man came to the cabin and um, was given this mission and he bumped into Carolyn along the way and told her, you know, what had happened, that he had lost his wife and child. And she just said, well, you know, it had to be done. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. That's Jones himself, talking his congregation through their deaths. He rambles on, infuriatingly self-indulgent, for about 45 minutes, as mothers fill syringes with the poisoned juice and squirt them into their babies' mouths, and then take the poison themselves. As more and more people saw their fellow congregants die in agony, they seemed reluctant to take the drink themselves, but Jones continued droning into the microphone, yelling at the dying people to stop screaming, and insisting that death was preferable to this life they were leading. At the end of it all, he took an easier way out than the five-minute-long death by poisoning that he was forcing on his followers. He shot himself in the head, or had a follower shoot him, and while many of his followers were found lying face down in dirt or grass, he was found lying on a pillow. As the pavilion echoed with the screams of the dying, Carolyn was in the cabin that she shared with Jones. She was organizing things, as she'd said she would do when she wrote an analysis of future prospects. She was making everything orderly, tidy, and meticulous, up to her standards, before she would let herself stop and drink. I don't know if she ever returned to the pavilion, but it seems likely that she was just away from it all and, um, you know, in the cabin arranging things, you know, she was seen at her typewriter and organising documents and, um, you know, giving passports to the people who were leaving. Um, And she ended up dying apart from the community in Jim Jones's cabin and I think it was... 13 people altogether died in there, but, um, you know, the rest were mostly dying in the pavilion, which was the community's centre and um, where all the meetings were held. She did, um, yeah, drink the Kool-Aid, you could say, but um, she, yeah, definitely it was said that the people who died in the cabin were probably among the last people to die. You know, they, they only died after 
things had been organized to a level which they could accept, I guess. While many remember Jonestown as a dark monument to the power of a single man's paranoia and fanaticism, the tale of Carolyn, the silent, unsmiling woman behind the throne, reveals a more frightening truth. Jones didn't work alone. He wasn't the only one in that compound who saw death as the answer. He was helped along, encouraged by his inner circle, by Carolyn herself. Carolyn, whose cool practicality and refusal to let herself get emotional over anything, from his other affairs to the prospect of dying along with her son, was surely a significant part of what enabled Jonestown to become the horrifying tragedy that we remember it as today. And so, her life becomes not so much a testament to the purifying strength of political conviction, but to the dangerous things that can happen when two people keep telling each other exactly what they want to hear. Our communication is so deep that we can often know the other's emotions. I naturally have no parapsychological powers and I'm very down to earth, but I know him so well. I often can tell how he will feel about things. He knows more about me than I know myself and always accepts me totally. Total acceptance and communication make our love deeper than I ever thought possible between two humans. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for listening to Criminal Broads. Thank you especially to our guest, Laura Elizabeth Woollett. I highly recommend checking out her books. I think if you like this podcast, you are going to really like the work she's doing in fiction. Um, and it's satisfying because it's, uh, as I said in the beginning, it's based on real research. So when you read Laura's accounts of these women, you can rest assured that she's working with real facts and kind of delving into their psyches in the way that only a fiction writer can do. Um, so again, her short stories are The Love of a Bad Man, that's her short story collection, and then the book that she's been talking about, um, or the story that she was just telling us, is from her book Beautiful Revolutionary, and uh, you should be able to get those um, in the U.S. or in Australia. You can get them on uh, Amazon or at your local Barnes & Noble. You can also go to laurelizabethwoolett.com. That's Woolett, W-O-O-L-L-E-T-T. Let's see, what other business do we have? Thanks, as always, for being so awesome. Um, thanks for the reviews. Anyone else who wants to leave an iTunes review and join the army of my faves? <laughs> that felt a little manipulative. I don't mean to go Jim Jones on you. 
if you want to leave an iTunes review, do it. But you know what? You have free will and I want you to do whatever you want. Um, you can go to Criminal Broads on Instagram, instagram.com slash criminal broads to see a photo of Carolyn Layton and other things that I may post. And I think that's all I have to tell you. So um, stay tuned for a minute after this. I'm going to play you a clip of the song Reverend, parentheses, Jim Jones, by the band Church of Misery, who said I could share this with you. So this is just a little example of kind of Jim Jones in popular culture and how his crazy, crazy influence um, becomes a thing that artists are understandably drawn to write about. Um, so stay tuned for that, and I'll see you in a bit. All right, thanks everyone so much. Bye-bye. Fanaticism was a difficult thing to capture while still retaining her humanity, I guess, as a character. And, um, you know, when writing the final day of Jonestown in particular, um, I did have an earlier draft where she was a bit more certain and cold about things, and um, it didn't make for as good fiction, as good reading. And, um, yeah, so I ended up giving her a few more doubts and stuff and I don't know if that is true to the real woman but it, it you know you make these changes to tell a good story and I think that was my intention to you know capture the real woman but still have fictional elements in order to tell a good story I guess um but she yeah I think as much as I researched her she still remains very mysterious to me and I did try to cap you know, retain some of that mystery because I, um, one thing about my book is it has a lot of different perspectives and it felt really important to show this character from different perspectives because she was seen so differently from, um, by different people who knew her, you know, those who knew her outside people's temples were a completely different person. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.